0: We are in Exodus chapter 20 as we are walking through the Ten Commandments. We are on the second commandment this morning, and we're going to just read that commandment together, read it out loud in unison. This is Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. So would you read this with me? You shall... three different arrangements, if you will, of the Ten Commandments, depending on sort of religious traditions. The Roman Catholic, Jewish, and Protestant or Reformed tradition uh, break the Ten Commandments down slightly differently. Jewish tradition would take what we have seen as the preface or prologue in verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. They would take that as the first commandment, and then bring together verses three through six, the no other gods before me in the passage we're reading this morning, and make that the second commandment. Catholic tradition takes all of verses one through six as the first commandment, and then um, divides up the commandment about coveting, the last, the, t- the tenth commandment, verse 17, and divides that up into two. The historic Reformed view of the Ten Commandments has been what we are following, which is verses one and two are a prolog They're prologue. There are Uh, The preface that sets the stage. This is what God is doing. This is God speaking. This is God who is the Lord creator, who is also the redeemer. I'm the one who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, all as the introduction to set the tone for then the first commandment. We saw last time in verse three, that the fundamental command, no other gods before me. And now this second commandment, which takes up verses four through six. And there are two pieces primarily to this second commandment. The one, the obvious one is no idolatry. It is a prohibition against any form of idolatry. The second part of it is not creating any kind of likeness or form of the one true God that might be used in worship. We'll come back to that one, but let's start with the idea of idolatry. God says not to bow down or worship Any image in the heavens above or in the earth below or even beneath the seas, comprehensive in that, doesn't matter what the image is made to look like, birds, animals, fish, man, lion, whatever it might be, all of that is forbidden. All of that was part and parcel of what The Jews were at least familiar with coming out of Egypt because of all of the idolatry that happened in Egypt. All of the false gods that were sort of amalgamations of creatures, of men, all sort of blended together in in idols that were carved, that were made out of wood or stone, and so there was various idols that were worshipped. The defining characteristic, though, that God describes here of of what idolatry is really is summed up in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God am a jealous God. What, what defines them as idols is the receiving of, of worship, the receiving of service or honor. The idea that I am now approaching them in a servant posture. I am looking up to them and declaring their worth. And he says that, that then becomes a rival to the one true God. Now we, we, probably pause at that point and go, well, I, I, don't, I don't have any idols per se, any little carved things around the house that I bow down to or that I worship in some way, and so I, I'm not too concerned about this. I, idolatry, like all sin, ultimately is a matter of the heart, the, the external action will reflect what's going on in the heart. And so idolatry begins in the desires and the feelings and the choosing and the thinking of what goes on inside of us. And so that's why james 4 even though he doesn't use the word idols in his opening description really does give us one of the best biblical diagnoses of what idolatry looks like he says in james 4 what causes quarrels and fights among you is it not your passions that are at war within you you desire and you do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions What what James is describing when he talks about the the passions and the desires and the things that that rage within us are things that can become idols. It's kind of like troops that are sent on a mission to to capture something and, and to do whatever it takes to capture that even if it means destroying enemies in between, anything that gets in the way of that because this, this must be done. And, and that's the way idolatry works in the sense that it becomes this consuming passion that, as he describes here, fights, quarrels, murder, per- perhaps not in the literal sense, murder even in the, just the sense of, as Jesus describes it in Matthew 5, our hatred toward others, our anger vented toward others, that, that we want this so much. And it becomes an idol to us. Idols are not in and of themselves necessarily blatantly evil. A- any, anything or anyone that I want so much that I'm willing to either push God out of the picture or run over you to get can become an idol. And so I want a promotion at work. I want obedient children. I want healing from a sickness. I want a spouse who does this or doesn't do that. I want repentance from this person who offended me. In and of themselves, all may be good things, but it it becomes an issue of the determination in my heart to get this and to make sure that I get my way. Becomes an idol when I live for it. If I have it, you best not mess with it. Don't try to take it away from me. If I don't have it, don't get in the way of me getting it. Don't be the obstacle that keeps me from getting what I want. That's when we know that we're, we're beginning to carve out images when we do that. If I don't have it and it leaves me angry or frustrated or completely discouraged because of what I'm lacking at that moment. And James's warning there is we poison relationships because of these passions and desires over things we crave. Why can't my wife have dinner ready when I get home? Why can't my husband clean up after himself? Why can't people at work appreciate me more? Again, in and of themselves, struck a nerve on a couple of those, right? In and of themselves, not necessarily bad things unless they become these consuming passions that I must have and that you now are standing in the way of me getting. If I'm ready to ruin your day because I'm not getting what I want, I have just carved an idol and I have now made it not only more important than you, but frankly, I've made it more important than God. And, and that's the point where we go, ah, now wait a minute, I, I'm not saying that, that it's more important than God, but, but the, the fundamental truth is this, if, if we believe God is sovereign, and God's provision for us is sufficient, that in his providence, he gives us what he knows we need and he provides for us, then that sort of raging passion within us that says I must have this is now an argument against God. It is now a a contention that God is not sufficient for me. He is not providing for me. And that's the point where we now are creating an idol that's rebelling against his sovereignty. Because God has is the one who has either brought that obstacle between me and whatever it is I want or has allowed that obstacle for his good purposes and for whatever reason is, is not allowing me to fulfill that desire and is calling me to be content in whatever circumstance I am in and to trust in his provision. And so we we grate against that and we commit idolatry. If I am stubbornly determined to fulfill that desire, no matter what, I am I'm elevating it above the perfect all-sufficient kindness and provision of God, and saying, no, this I must have. The Israelites, we know, historically didn't take long to embrace the idolatry of the foreign nations that surrounded them. Life's circumstances came up, and they looked for other ways to get what they wanted, and so when when they struggled to have a pregnancy, when they struggled with fertility issues, or when the crops went bad, then, then they knew of these other gods of other nations that were to be prayed to and sacrificed to, because they promised that you'll get what you want, these, these gods of fertility or whatever they might be. Your desire must be met. And so whether it's a statue of some false god or some deep-seated craving that I think that I must have in order to be happy... There is a point here where we are violating the second commandment when we are elevating this person, this thing, this desire above the kind provision of God for us. Second element, though, in this is is the one that's maybe a little bit trickier, and that's this issue of making a likeness of anything, even in heaven above, for purposes of worship, for purposes of bowing down to or serving. Some would say that the safest interpretation of this is, yes, it applies to false gods, the, the carving of the... Object, the inanimate object, the, the, the false God. And, and we know that's by application, that's certainly part of it. But we already know from verse 3 that there are to be no other gods, period. And so obviously making a likeness of a false God is, is similarly banned because he's already said in the first commandment, You shall have no other gods before me. Um, Man made images certainly can be applied to false gods. Our, our culture does this. Maybe they would say on a slightly more sophisticated level, but it's really no different. Um, yesterday, not far from here, there was a celebration of Northern Virginia Pagan Pride Day, and the website describes paganism a couple different ways. Two of them are this. Religion that focuses on earth-based spirituality or that focuses religious or spiritual attention primarily on the divine feminine. That That is infusing attributes of God, attributes of deity, and putting them in stuff, in things, in people. It is, it, 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 is taken, it is environmentalism taken to an extreme. We are called to be good stewards of what God has given us, but when we begin to worship the creation, we are infusing deity now into the trees and plants and flowers or into other people or into feelings, and we are taking attributes of God and putting them into things that are not God. So the commandment not only speaks to that, but it also addresses what really to us would be incorrect, unbiblical worship of the true God by forbidding us from making or imagining something that is then to be worshiped as representing God. Let me explain what I mean by that. You can keep your finger here or we'll scroll back to it. Go to Deuteronomy chapter four. Move a couple of more books into the Bible to Deuteronomy chapter four. We'll come back again to Exodus 20. Great illustration of what the second commandment is prohibiting when we talk about this question of the likeness or an image of God. Moses is looking back here in Deuteronomy 4 as much of Deuteronomy is Recitation of history reminding them before Moses steps off the scene, here is the truth that you know about your God, here is what your God has done. And here he's reminding them of where they were getting the Ten Commandments at the base of the mountain. And so Deuteronomy 4, uh, verse 11. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you, out of the midst of the fire you heard the sound of words but saw no form there was only a voice pause there God appears to them in ways that they can see his his attributes they get a sense for his power and his glory the fire the thunder that we know from exodus 19 the 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 scene is just depicting a majestic holy one and so all of that is there but God not only is revealed in terms of his attributes, but at the same time, he is still obscured. They don't see his form, he says here quite specifically. His power and greatness are on display, but the cloud and gloom make it so that they heard him, but they did not see his form. That Hebrew word for form in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 4 is the same word as likeness in the Ten Commandments when he says, You shall have no likeness. You shall not make for yourself a likeness. God did not show them an image of himself. He didn't put on the big screen the picture of who he was at that moment. He allowed them to sense who he was by his revelation of his attributes and power, but he did not show them his form or his image. And he's going to now command them then to learn from that and not try to make a form or image of God. If you drop down to verse 15 Deuteronomy 4 verse 15, therefore watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. God did not present himself to you in some manageable form that you could say, ah, now I know what, exactly what God looks like. He didn't do that. And in fact, the warning of verse 16 is saying, since you saw no form, don't act corruptly now and try to devise one. Try to make an image of what you think God should be so that you can use that for worship. There's several reasons for this, I think, that that help us understand why the second commandment says to not make an image or likeness of God. First of all, it's because God in his essence is invisible. God is spirit. Scripture is very clear in its description of who God is. He manifests himself. He can make himself for our sake to, to be able to see in, in some visible ways. And so Jacob, as he wrestles with the angel of God, Jacob comes out of that experience in Jacob in Genesis 32.30 says, I have seen God face to face. And yet we move ahead to John 1.18, and it says, No one has ever seen God. Jacob is seeing some manifestation of what God allows him to see in that moment. But God himself is, as 1 Timothy says, immortal, invisible, the only God. He is spirit reveals himself to us in through the words of scripture and through the person of Jesus Christ but in essence God is invisible secondly God is incomprehensible in an absolute sense I use caution as I say that because clearly he's given us his word. He wants us to know him. He wants us to comprehend who he is. But in the absolute sense of comprehending something in its entirety, God is incomprehensible. There's only so far that our minds will let us go to conceive of who God is and what he's like. There's only what we get in scripture. Um, there's another warning in Deuteronomy 4, a little further down, where he prohibits, again, idolatry in Deuteronomy 4.25. And he goes on after that, and he describes the, the judgment that will fall on the people if indeed they do this. When, your father, uh, when you father children and children's children, they've grown old in the land. If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger. And the, the verses that follow speak of God judging them the people responding, it'll describe, and crying out for mercy. And what God, what, what God then does is he explains, I've already been merciful to you. You don't need to make this image. I've already revealed myself to you, all that you need to know. I have already showed you who I am and what I am like in, in the things that I have done. So if you look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 34, this is, again, by way of reminder now of, of what he has already mercifully done. Or has any God ever attempted to go and to take a nation for himself, talking about the Israelites when they are enslaved in Egypt, take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you, this is Moses speaking to them, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. There is none like God. Moses is saying there's there's nothing to which you can compare God. There's no perfect analogy to God. There's no image you can make that would be like God because in an absolute sense, God is greater than anything else that you can possibly try to put in his place. He is incomprehensible in that sense. Everything that, that man would come up with to try to fully conceive of what God is like would fall short remember again, we're, we're talking here about likeness or image for the, the purpose of worship. So if I feel like I need to have a lion to symbolize God's strength, or I need to use gold to make something because it's perfection, or a monument to God that is taller than anything else because it's larger than, than anything else, and that must point to God. All of that falls short. All of it is inadequate to describe God's strength and his purity and his might and his greatness. All of that is just frail human effort. And that's why he says to us, "Don't, don't make a likeness of me because not only am I invisible, but in an absolute sense, I am incomprehensible. We're going to come back to Deuteronomy for one more time, but you can go back to Exodus chapter 20. After Moses gives the Ten Commandments, look at God's words to his people. Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. Exodus 20, verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. See the warning? Okay, you've heard me. You saw on the mountain my appearance to you in, in clouds, in fire, in thunder, and all of that. I don't want you to go and try to emulate that with objects that you think are worth worshiping. I don't even want you to take the most precious things you have, gold and silver, and try to create stuff because you say, oh, but God, this is this is precious gold, and so if I make this and it helps me to worship you, he says, you don't need that. I've already revealed myself to you. He is invisible. He is incomprehensible in an absolute sense. He can't be packaged. And yet, what did the Israelites do just a short time after this? They still tried. We fast forward to Exodus chapter 32. Moses has been up on the mountain with God, and the people are now growing impatient below, and they are now concerned because they haven't seen God. They haven't seen Moses. And so they come to Moses' brother Aaron, and they say, make some other leaders for us. Make some something for us that we can, that we can put our hands on, that we can comprehend. We need something like God in our midst if Moses is not coming back. And so what does Aaron do? He has everybody bring their gold jewelry, and he melts it down, and he forms this golden calf. The worship of cows was not unusual back in Egypt. There were sacred bulls that were used, and this is probably some degree of carryover in Aaron's mind. But in Exodus 32, when he presents this, you sense the the confusion even in aaron's mind as he speaks because he presents and says these are your gods O israel who brought you up out of the land of egypt and then he says tomorrow shall be a feast to the lord here's here's the problem of the object now leading worship because it's now on a plane with god and he's saying here are your gods Who brought you up out of Egypt? He knows the truth. It's God who delivered them out of Egypt. It's God who's worthy of a feast. And yet he's now put this this golden idol on the same plane as God. This is now sort of this visible manifestation. And you can come and see this and touch this and feel this. And this this, this is like God. This is exactly what God said back in Exodus 20. Don't now go and make gods of silver and gold as if they can be with me, as if they can be peers of mine. We know from Deuteronomy that, that Moses was gone for 40 days. So it has been about six weeks since they were at the base of the mountain, saw this display, unrivaled display of the majesty and power of God as incomprehensibly great, greater than all others. And yet here they are now saying, I, I, want, I need something. I need something I can sort of touch and see and and rally around in some way. I need something tangible. And that's what Aaron does. That's what he responds. And it it, it really does point to then a a third reason why we must not do this, make likenesses or image of God for the, the purpose of worship. And that is just because of the frailty of our own imagination. It's not only because God is invisible and he is incomprehensible in an absolute sense, but it's because our own imaginations are at best flawed, at worst sinful. Now, imagination is a gift from God. We get to do wonderful things with our imagination. Those of you who are artists or who appreciate art, you appreciate the imagination and how it can sculpt and paint and and write songs and poetry and all of those good things. But scripture also has warnings about our imagination. Speaks in Proverbs 18 of the man who imagines that with all of this wealth I am safe. I, am, I, don't, I don't have to worry about where my protection comes from because I imagine it comes from my wealth. Paul condemns the imagination in, in Acts 17.29 as being the source of man's uh, idolatry. That that the imagination is where these expressions of idolatry come from. First Corinthians 2.9, on a positive note, speaks of how you and I cannot imagine what God has prepared before us what God has prepared for us to enjoy one day as he's speaking of the glories of heaven. We we try to think about what heaven's like. We've got some understanding from scripture. We try to imagine what it is for our loved ones who have gone before. It's okay. That scripture's given us a little bit to think on and to ponder and to know that God has prepared something for those he has loved. But it also what what Paul is saying is Your imagination is so limited. You can't even begin to comprehend what God has prepared for you. You, You're only able to just sort of imagine just a little of that. That's why Ephesians 3.20 says, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think of him doing because our imaginations are limited at best and sinful at worst. And, and, And Aaron becomes an illustration of the latter point when he says, here, here's what I imagine that, that we could add to our worship. And it's, we're, not, we're not getting rid of the God who led us out. We're going to hold a feast to him, but we're going to use this as some means of facilitating our worship. Making a likeness of God is always destined to fall short because at the worst case scenario like Adam, we end up then sort of designing God, what we think he should be, what we think he should be like. And and I think all of that brings us full circle right back to James 4, which is when my my desires and my passions and my imagination begin to supplement or even supplant God's truth, I am treading into the land of idolatry at that point. I am beginning to step beyond what God has said. Here Here is who I am. Here is how I have called you to worship me follow this don't don't try to see if you can outthink it because you'll end up coming up short so when we worship on Sunday mornings as a corporate body we're drawing that from what we see in Scripture they came together on the first day of the week they sang together they prayed together they fellowship together they sat under the ministry of the word together they brought offerings together all of that is already prescribed for us given to us by God in Scripture I fall into this trap, though, when I start to let my imagination go of what God can or should be, and God now should be the God who fixes all my circumstances and solves all my problems and heals all my sicknesses, and if he doesn't do that, then this isn't quite what I bargained for, and that's, that's when we're into this idolatrous realm. It's when I, I pray for the loved one to be healed of cancer, which is a perfectly good desire, But it becomes idolatry when I say, I can't imagine going on without this person. I can't deal with this if this person isn't healed. God, in his sufficient grace, has said, I I will meet you where you are, and I will meet your need in my sufficiency. Rest in me. Don't create an idol out of some what seems to be a good desire. So let's think about a different question here in reference to this likeness image, Um, what about depictions of Jesus Christ? What about images of Christ, particularly statues of Jesus Christ? What about the images of Jesus Christ on the cross? Thomas Watson, Puritan in the 17th century, had the objection brought to him that since Jesus Christ came, this has changed. The second commandment has a different sense to it because Jesus came as a man, and so it's okay now to make representations of him. Watson wrote this, and I think this is insightful. We'll think about it here in a moment. It is Christ's Godhead, united to his manhood, that makes him to be the Christ. Therefore, to picture his manhood when we cannot picture his Godhead is a sin, because we make him to be but half Christ. We separate what God has joined. We leave out that which is the chief thing which makes Jesus to be Christ. He is still fully God. The, the difficulty of us in understanding the incarnation is how one is fully God and fully man, but that is how he is described at the incarnation. He is still fully God. And if we believe that Jesus is fully God and we are forbidden from making a likeness of God for the purposes of worship, then we ought not do that either. Again, Remember this is the the context of this and the command is in Exodus 20 verse 5 is bowing down to and serving it is it is that line of adoration or reverence given to something so this is not banning an artist from doing a painting of the Last Supper and saying this is, this is possibly what it might have looked like. This isn't forbidding you from showing children's videos that show your child the life of Christ to say, okay, here's, here's what the life of Jesus and his disciples and that interaction that we see in the Gospels how it might have looked at least in video form, what it's saying is when that crosses the line where that image now becomes Jesus, that becomes something that I adore, that becomes the, the statue or the thing that I kiss or that I bow down to or that I pay homage to in some way, that's when I have crossed that line. That's when he has called me to not make likenesses of himself, but rather to take him as he is revealed in his word. That's who we worship in spirit and in truth. It's one last element in in this uh, second command in Exodus 20. He says in verse 5, You shall not bow down to or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The prohibition against serving or bowing down to an image or likeness of God is based on this, he says, on the fact that I am a jealous God. God is zealous for God. God guards his own identity, the revelation of himself, because whenever man tries to describe God apart from God's revelation, inevitably it falls short. This is not arrogance. This is the creator of the universe who has condescended and made man and now reveals himself in love and mercy to us, saying, I will guard who I am and how I am revealed. I must, because if you try to do this apart from me, you will fall short. You will be inadequate. You will describe it wrong. God must be jealous for God. That's why we learn to know and to worship God as he is revealed in scripture, because to do otherwise runs the risk of misrepresenting him or belittling him in some way. Then he gave this warning. Not only he says, I'm a jealous God, but then he speaks of visiting, sort of carrying the iniquity, the punishment of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's a, an interesting question. If you, if you deal with anybody that's a skeptic of scripture, they will at some point say, well, that doesn't look nice. What, is, what does that mean? We, also, we, we know scripture is very clear on individual responsibility. Both Old and New Testament speak very much in, with clarity that the responsibility of the guilty party, they, they are held responsible for, for that and they are punished for that. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what's, what's up with Exodus 20 verse 5 then when he speaks of visiting the iniquity then on third and fourth generations? A couple aspects, I think, to that. It's not saying God will charge the guilt of the father's idolatry and now will charge that guilt to the children and, and they will now be punished as a result of that. I, I, I think what he's recognizing first of all here, what he's saying here, is the reality of consequences that the things that you and I do are generally not in isolation from other people. That our sin, more often than not, has some fallout that affects the people around us. That if we are going to live in stubborn patterns of sin, if we are going to disobey God, and he specifically says here, third and fourth generations of those who hate me, if I am going to choose to consistently rebel against God, to bow down to idols, to make objects to worship, then I should fully expect that my life will bear consequences that will impact others. That may not be nice. I may not like that, but that's the reality. And more so in this culture, even so than today. We're used to a culture today where, you know, you hit a certain age and you grow up, you move, go to college. You may never come back home again. In the Israelite culture, the farming culture of that era, everybody was pretty much together. And so if, if dad was a terrible, horrible, evil person and there was fallout and consequences raining on him, they probably were going to have... Consequences rain on, on all of those around. Others were going to feel that as well. But in the bigger picture, well, let me let, go back to Deuteronomy for just a second. Let me come back to second. Like Deuteronomy 4, just one more time. Moses, again, reminding the Israelites. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. And I think, I think here points to what, what he's getting at at the end of the second commandment. Deuteronomy 4 verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Okay, there's the personal side of it. You don't want to forget this. You don't want to walk away from it. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth and that they may teach their children so. Who is the primary responsibility of discipling and teaching the next generation? It's parents, right? It starts with parents. It, it, it starts at home. And what he says here through Moses is... Don't you forget these things. Keep reminding yourself of these things. We're forgetful human beings. We need reminders. We need to keep meditating on what's truth. Not only so that you don't walk astray, but so that you can now pass that on. So that you can now tell your children about who the God of the Bible is, what you've learned from Scripture, so that you can now pass that. Um, parents were instructed to pass down reverence for God to their kids. And so I think there's a sense in which this closing part of the second commandment is is in some sense a close to the first and second commandments. When he says that I'm a jealous God, you you despise me and you turn against me and there will be consequences for generations that will impact them. And yet, verse 6, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The first two commandments, and we said this last week, these are pivotal. No other gods before me. There is only one God whose supremacy must be exalted in all of life. And the second commandment no idols, nothing that would try to compete with him, nothing that would try to be a likeness of him, worship him as he has revealed himself. If you get one or both of those wrong, your theology now runs amok. If you get either one of those wrong, you're in trouble in your understanding of who God is and how to respond to him. They are serious. And so the warning here is not only for the sinful foolishness of, of idolatry, of uh, attributing godlike qualities to other persons or things. It's not just warnings about sort of man-centered worship, but these are commands. To know these things and to teach them, to take these, these commands and to impart them to your children, to Help your children see them lived out, what it means to be a worshiper of the one true God, of somebody who is devoted to one God, who believes that he alone is God. This is is a reminder, again, of our responsibility, that God's gracious revelation of himself must be passed Down to the next generation. We must entrust His truth to them, not allowing our imaginations to define God as we see fit, not adding to or taking away from Scripture, but speaking the truth of who He is, revealing Him to the next generation right from His Word as He's revealed Himself to us. With that kind of responsibility, it is kind of God in verse six to say, And know this, I am a merciful, loving God, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Want an example of God's mercy as we think about this subject of idolatry? We'll just close with this. Think about Joshua as he is talking to the Israelites. Joshua followed the pattern that Moses had taught him. Keep telling them the same stories. Repeat these things back to them so that they they stay with them. And Joshua in Joshua 24 says to the people long ago, Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I, God, took your father Abraham from beyond the river, led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. That is Joshua saying, there's the mercy of God. There is a merciful God who reaches down into a land beyond the promised land, beyond the Euphrates, into a family that is an idol-worshiping family that is far from God, that is far from the creator God, worshiping some idols, and God in his mercy, not because Abraham commended himself to God and said, hey, look over here, I've got it all right, but because God in his mercy reached down into this pagan land and pulled out this pagan idol worshiper and said, I'm going to make you mine. Not only am I going to make you mine and bring you into this land, but you will now be the father of a nation and the spiritual father of generations to come of people who will go back and read the account of how I rescued you. And they will see even in your faith, my good work in your life. And they will understand that justification is by faith. We get all that from this idol worshiping family that God reached into and in mercy delivered out of that Abraham. It is a merciful God who sets before us these two commands to get us started. I am God and there is no other. There is none like me. Don't manufacture rivals to me. Don't allow your passions or desires to rival me. Don't make images or likenesses that you think somehow are substitutes for me that you worship. Worship me as I have revealed myself to you and as I have called you to worship and yield your affection. Submit your desires and your heart to my leadership and my rule in your life and allow me in mercy to be at work in you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, the greatness that we see in scripture. Lord, it is, it is a reminder every time we are brought to think about idolatry, it is a reminder of all of the cheap imitations, the powerless imitations, the, the things that seem to bring fleeting pleasures or satisfactions that, that, that simply do not last. It is a reminder of your eternality, your perfect justice, your long standing mercy your love for your people, your distinctive holiness above all things. So we see in Scripture that you stand alone, that you have revealed yourself, not as one who can be considered just part of many, but as one who has said very clearly, I am the Lord and there is no other. Help us to believe that, Father, not only by meditating on the truths of scripture but by how we live may your spirit and your grace be perpetual reminders to us that we bow before one god one king ultimately lord thank you that you have revealed yourself to us we would not know you otherwise we would be lost and confused thank you for showing us who you are i pray father for the the parents in this room and the grandparents and each one that you've put in a family relationship where they have a a chance, and opportunity to to testify to the next generation. I pray that by your grace and mercy, we would carry on a a sweet testimony of pointing back to the one true God, of, of, of showing that this God in his mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross to take our sins and the penalty we deserve. And that he rose from the dead victorious and conquered sin and death to offer forgiveness and life to all who will trust in him. Help us to speak of him often, to encourage the next generations to hold fast to him, to rest in Christ, to be content in Christ and in your provision for our needs as being sufficient. Father, as we... Your people have been meditating on how you have revealed yourself. We now sing. We pray that you would hear from this place voices echoing with gladness and joy and gratitude at who you are, at how we adore you and worship you, how we are grateful for your mercy toward us, how we are desperately in need of your provision for us each day.